Let's meet together in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, New Testament. Then you'll hit Romans if you get to First and Second Corinthians. Go back to the left. Or you can just look at the text there in your worship book. Or you can type in Romans 12, verse 1. So many different ways for us to be on the same page, literally and figuratively, uh, today. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. It's always good to open up the Word, isn't it, G? It's always good to open up the Word and uh, hear from the Lord today, and we're going to continue to do so because we've covered a lot of ground in our Roman series thus far. We actually, if you remember, started this journey remotely uh, through Zoom uh, in April of 2020. Um, that was over 100 weeks of a teaching ago, um, and we've been considering some of the most dense, some of the most foundational truths uh, of the Christian faith. And today, Paul is going to take the most significant shift in his teaching anywhere in the letter. He's going to move from ultimately talking about clear theological expl explanation to practical teaching, from what we ought to believe to how we ought to act. So he's essentially going to say, in light of all of this truth that I have communicated to you, particularly that Jews and Gentiles have come to the same faith through the same Jesus by the same grace through faith. Here's then how you should live. And that's what I'd like to explore the remainder of this teaching series, which by God's grace will take us into November of next year. Um, we've got breaks along the way, but we're going to be uh, in this uh, about another year. And today Paul makes this transition by, through a simple phrase. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, if you notice that in the beginning of verse 1, that therefore serves as kind of like this connective literary tissue, if you will, to the first of everything I've set up until this point, Romans, to the, the, the next or the last five. Because of everything I've set up until this point, Paul says, I want you to worship like this. And that's going to be his focus today, worship. Specifically what he calls your spiritual worship, or really that word means your logical worship, or your true worship. In other words, there's one kind of worship that makes sense in light of everything that I've taught you. Three years before his untimely death in 2008, renowned uh, author, writer David Foster Wallace instructed the graduating class of Kenyon uh, College on worship. Of all things, he wanted to talk to them about worship. And to the best of my knowledge, he was not a Christian. But he explained, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. He says everyone worships. The only choice we get to make is what we worship. Wallace understood that worship is not strictly a religious affair. It's not simply the adherence of organized faith who believe and hope and venerate something. We all instinctively worship. In fact, there may be no greater blind spot in the modern world than this truth. We all worship something. This perhaps is the one truth that we all act like is not true, and in doing so, we sort of participate in a form of worship of self or of autonomy or individualism or relativism, right? But we all build our lives on something. We all hope in something. We all serve something. That's worship. Worship is the incarnation of our faith. Worship is your lived-out theology. Whether you have written your theology or what you believe about God or not, how you live reveals what you worship. This is simply how we're made. Now, 
in our prevailing and really relativistic, more Western culture, and relativistic just means that it's your truth is determined by you, even if we concede this fact that everyone worships, we generally reject the idea that you can tell me who to worship. You can't even critique the way that I worship. Maybe we'll give you the idea that everybody worships, but you can't tell me that one is right or wrong. But that's exactly what Paul is going to say in Romans 12, verse 1. In light of everything that he said in the first 11 chapters, he says there's one logical, regular, good, and true way to build your life. That's Paul's focus as he transitions from the first 11 chapters into the last five. Here's what he says. Look at it again. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul's going to tell us three things about true worship. He's going to tell us the reason for true worship. He's going to tell us the cost of true worship. And then he's going to tell us the reward of true worship. He's going to tell us the reason, the cost, and then the reward. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, uh, left to ourselves, this word is really interesting, maybe even sentimental, but it's not transformative. And so we pray that by your power, by your grace, you would transform us by the renewal of our minds, transformation of our hearts. Would you, would you break down falsehoods or lies that we believe today about you, about ourselves, about our world, about our neighbors? And would you build back up truth and love and grace, and mercy, and faith, and hope, and peace. We know that when those things start springing out of our life and produce in our lives, we know that that's because you're at work in us. And so I pray that for my sisters and brothers. Our hope is not that we only think better today, but that as a result of what we think and believe and know, that we live and inhabit those truths in worship differently. I pray for myself, I pray for my sisters, and I pray for my brothers and ask that you would lead us today by your Holy Spirit through this word. Speak truth to us, comfort us, correct us, love us, woo us by your mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So a number of questions that are before us. Why do we worship? Uh, why should we worship the God of the Bible? What, what reason uh, does he give us to build our lives on him over and against every other god or idol or idea or power of our day and of our let's take a big view of why god world religions what comes to mind what's the reason first let's let's kick let's take a big view of why god or why we ought to worship the god of the bible and then we'll zoom in in particular on what paul is saying a good starting point is that god explicitly tells us to worship him alone a good starting point is just with that you, you the first commandment is clear, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Then, then Moses builds on this teaching, instructing Israel in Deuteronomy 6. It is the Lord your God who you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. Jesus then actually quotes this passage in Deuteronomy when Satan tempts him in the wilderness. If you've read this story before. If you remember Jesus, or rather Satan promises Jesus the kingdoms of the world, if only he would do what? Bow down and worship me. Jesus responds as he did to the previous temptations. It is written, and here comes Deuteronomy 6, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. 
So at some level, we worship God because he tells us to worship him exclusively. We should worship God because this is what he commands us. But there's more. When King David, one of the main architects of the Psalms, and a man described after God's own heart, was saved by God from a number of violent acts of Saul, the preceding uh, king of Israel, he worshipped God. But David's worship is not a response to a command of worship. The reason for David's worship is God's worthiness. He says this in 2 Samuel 22, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Church, nothing else, put it this way, nothing else is worthy of your worship. Nothing else is worthy of your veneration, no matter if it commands you or not. So the question we should ask as intellectual, thoughtful people, right? If God commands us to worship him, is he worthy of that worship? Who is he to say worship is worthy of being the foundational impulse or idea or aim of your life? Foster Wallace continued at commencement in perhaps a surprising way. He said, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start to show, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. This is at a liberal arts college graduating class of 2005. He pulled no punches. He was speaking truth. What's he saying? Money, stuff, beauty, sex, they are not worthy of your worship. They are not worthy of building your life upon. Right? In fact, they ultimately destroy you. They ultimately take from you. Here's how you know you have an idol. It always takes more than it gives. It always takes more than it gives. At the beginning, it might be, this is really nice, right? Like maybe your earliest Twitter-pated feelings in fifth grade. This is a really interesting relationship. I really enjoy this. Ah, and then it's gut-wrenching, right? Because I put way too much hope in this relationship. I started suffocating that person, and everybody told me they were bad for me, but I went for it anyway. And then all of a sudden, what? It takes more than it gives because you put way too much on it, right? Maybe this is just my story and not yours. Fifth grade was hard. It was hard, y'all. It was a rough, rough stage. See, we should worship God. Why? Because he's worthy. He doesn't destroy, he heals, he helps, and he restores. But there's even more. See, though God commands our worship and God is worthy of our worship, neither is the basis or the foundation for Paul's instruction on worship. What's he say? Look at, again, the first part of verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's the reason. That's the reason of true worship. Paul transitions from the first 11 chapters, three years, right? A hundred lessons, a hundred sermons, and he says, that's all about the mercies of God. Everything you have learned is all about the mercies of God. That's the reason for true worship, God's mercy. Or to put it in a complimentary way, the only response that makes sense to God's mercy is true worship. The only response that makes sense. Not that can deserve it. That's not what we're saying. It's the only logical thing to do. The only logical thing to do when you experience the mercy of God is to respond in true worship. So what exactly is mercy? 
We learned about this last week, thoughtfully, clearly from Pastor Kuroka. The theologian Louis Burkhoff explains that if the grace of God contemplate a person guilty before God and therefore in need of forgiveness, the mercy of God contemplates him as one who is bearing the consequences of sin, who is in a pitiable condition, and who therefore needs divine help. See, grace leads to the forgiveness of sin. Mercy leads to help when you are in need. Yes, God commands our worship. Yes, God is worthy of our worship. But the reason that Paul says we ought to truly worship God is because he helps us in ways that no one else can and no one else does. In fact, if you notice, what does he say? He doesn't say because of the mercy of God. What does it say? The mercies of God. It's plural. And if I could make it, the abstract concept is manifested in all sorts of tangible forms. What's that mean? God is not just generally merciful to you. He was not just merciful to you when you became a Christian. God's mercies show up every day in plain and subtle expressions of love, of care, of a DoorDash gift card you didn't expect from a friend, of a call, of a text, of a hug, of a reminder of his grandeur when you walked by the lake even though it was super cold, right? All of those are his mercies to you. We are to worship God of a big and bold theological reality. We are to worship God because of all of his mercies, all of the ways he has been a help to you in your time of need. That's why we build our life on God, because he doesn't destroy, he helps. See, the reason for true worship is mercy, but it comes at a cost. See, when our worship is not motivated by the mercies of God, it's almost always motivated by fear. Think about it. If we know that God is the God of mercy, then we don't have to fear punishment. And if, and if I'm honest, much of my obedience is predicated upon, I don't want anything bad to happen to me. And I know, I've read it in the Bible, right? If I don't do everything right, something bad's going to happen to me. So my motivation is fear of judgment, not a response to mercy. But this is the exact thing that actually draws us to things like money and beauty and power. These promise quick and immediate protection, even from God. I can run from his consequence if I have more money, if I have more power, if I have more pleasure, if I have more beauty. See, while God's mercies woo us to love and trust him in return, no matter the cost, fear teaches us to worship God so he doesn't hurt us. It's a completely and fundamentally different way of looking at God and of living and of worshiping. We don't want to suffer. Perhaps this is why you're here today. You thought to yourself, if I don't go to church, something bad's going to happen to me, so I'm going to show up by way of some sort of spiritual insurance, right? Perhaps this is why you obey or teach others to obey. Fear of suffering. We see this in the story of the rich young man, Mark 10. He asks Jesus, what must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. This is a pretty religious dude. He's doing all kinds of wonderful things, at least it would seem. And when Jesus told him, sell everything that you have, sell all of your possessions and bless the poor, do you remember what the rich young man does? He walks away disappointed and sad. It was too costly. Why? Because he trusted those things. To bless his neighbors, those were things that protected him. And so, he trusted those things to protect him, not God. Religion then was simply another means of spiritual insurance. You see, when we worship, 
because of mercies, we live this life of surrender. No cost is too great because God's going to help me. God's going to protect me. He's got me. What could I lose that would protect me more than God, that would help me more than God? I could lose nothing. But when we worship and when worship is motivated out of fear, we try to protect ourselves and hedge our bets all the time. See, fear is a primary motivation for worship, not just within the church, but also in popular culture. No one is immune to this. Christians notoriously use shame and consequence as a way of coercing people to obey or give or show up or tell their friends about Jesus. You better tell people about how loving Jesus is or you're going to go to hell. You're like, what? That makes no sense. But this is a mantra of the evangelical church today. This is particularly true, and maybe many of you experienced this growing up in the church as it relates to our discipleship of children, especially in relationship with sexuality. We, we hold over, we cast this doom and gloom over them and say, you better do what God tells you to do or something bad is going to happen to you. Politicians employ a state of emergency to elicit trust and allegiance from their constituencies. If you don't vote for me, America is going to fall apart. Well, I better do, that sounds bad. I better, I better do that, right? Brands do it too. Buy this or else. Your life is going to be terrible. You're going to be the only one of your friend group who doesn't look this cool if you don't buy this particular thing, right? And I go, okay, here's $300. I definitely need that thing because I want to be cool. You see? It's all about worshiping out of fear. It's behavior. It's obedience. It's eliciting a kind of response all based on fear. No one is mean. See, in a different vantage point, Foster Wallace is saying we can't help but worship, but in our sin, we can't help but worship out of fear. This is the one thing I would add to put out of fear. The church, mitigating fear doesn't work. Fear never produces. It's all about mitigating damage and cost and avoiding suffering. Fear never produces true worship, ever. Pastor Tim Keller explains, if fear is the primary motivation for our obedience, we should see the following effects. Our motivation will lose its power over time. I've seen this with my children, right? If a consequence all of a sudden isn't working, what do I have to do? I have to up the ante. I have to say, all right, it was going to be one hour of screen time taken away. Now you will never have any joy ever the rest of your life. If you did, right? We have to increase the fear because the motivation starts waning. Secondly, Keller says our motivation not only will lose its power, but we'll have trouble with repentance. Why would I want to transform my behavior if the person whom I'm trying to emulate, I don't know whether they love me if they just want to hurt me? Thirdly, we find it difficult to endure suffering and trouble. Fear doesn't get us ready to suffer. Fear teaches us to avoid suffering at all costs. See, fear never produces true worship. True worship is costly. It's not about the avoidance of suffering, but it's a power which helps us to endure even in the midst of suffering. You know, one pastor put it once that the, that the church is meant to help one another constantly get ready to suffer. We're supposed to prepare one another to suffer because it's inevitable. What's Jesus say? In this world, you might have trouble. You'll have trouble if you disobey. No, in this world, you will have trouble, but fear not. Why? Because I've overcome the world. In other words, your suffering is never the end of the story. I'll be with you. I won't forsake you. We're meant to prepare one another for suffering. And so we should be very watchful for one another when we notice that the behavior of the heart is to simply avoid suffering and discomfort. That's not going to be good for you. That's not the promise that God has given you. 
See, true worship must be a response to mercy and love, not fear and control. And so having established the reason for mercy, that's why Paul goes on to say, there's by the mercies of God, and here's the second part of verse 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So the reason is mercy, and the cost is your body, your whole life. The term body representative is representative in this case. However, it doesn't exclude your physical body. It's part of it. In fact, there's likely two things that should come into focus when we read this particular portion of the verse. First, Paul is talking about your personal, physical space, your whole person, your whole life. But he's also using this word as a collective body of Christ. He's talking about all of us. Worship, then, will cost you your whole self and your whole community. None of us gets to walk around and go, well, since you paid the price, I won't have to. What's that look like? What's it actually look like? It's a nice thought, right? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's this look like for us? Well, Paul says we offer our whole self, our whole community, as what he calls a living sacrifice. And this is deeply counterintuitive. At the risk of oversimplification, right, or being overly simplistic, when something is sacrificed, it's killed. It's no longer alive. This is sort of the basic premise of a sacrifice, right? And Paul, though, is, his thought plays off this first century audience's literal understanding of sacrifices, but also their rich heritage of understanding a metaphor, right? In particular, this metaphor. They were really familiar with the whole idea of bringing an actual living creature and killing it as a sacrifice was spiritual and not always literal. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 51, that great psalm of confession, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, worship is about a humble spirit, about a confessing, confessing sin and repenting. Worship then is a whole life offering individually and communally. We do this together. That means you can not embody this text without your brothers and sisters. Like many passages and commands of scriptures, you can't obey this on your own. Did you know that the scriptures are impossible to obey on your own? There's body with a priest, another here. There's too much identifying with a people, with a family, with a body, with a priesthood. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? Too many of us think this is just like a little stop point in our own personal spiritual formation. Sunday is where we get our community on, but the rest of the week is our spiritual formation story. That's not true. You have, you need each other. I need you. You need me. We all need one another. Why? Because I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And I need you to say, yo, Jason, I think right now you're living a life avoiding suffering and cost. You're worshiping out of fear, not out of mercy. I can't always see that. And I think none of us can. See, the body becomes this spiritual offering when the very members of our body are surrendered in obedience to God. Because I, and I think 4th um, century, Archbishop of Constantinople, St. John Christostom, he really helps to break this down. Like, what does this even look like? It's a nice thought. What's it look like? He explained, let the eye look upon no evil, and it hath become a sacrifice. Let thy tongue speak nothing filthy, and it hath become an offering. Let thine hand do no lawless deed, and it hath become a whole burnt offering. In other words, we live as a living sacrifice 
when the things that we do are not unto ourselves and based on our own intuition and our own impulses, but in accordance with the will of God. We're dying to ourselves, to our desires, to every God we might possibly worship, not because people around us are judging us, but because people around us are taking care of us. Those things destroy you. Those things destroy me. That's why Paul, back in Romans 6, has this message for his people, for his audience. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's true worship. We live as sacrifices, though it costs us our very lives. It costs you the house that you want to live in. It costs you the neighborhood that you thought you were headed towards. It costs you the job. It costs you the relationship. It costs you the comfort. It costs you the budget. It costs you something. Church, if you have not lost something you once thought precious before you met Jesus, you're not following him. He will cost you what you once thought precious because he redefines that idea of what truly is valuable, of what truly is life. The minority of us in the Christian faith should be the ones who have lost nothing to follow him. Too often it feels like the exception to the rule, right? We look at somebody who does something great. Wow, they must really love God because they were willing for it to cost them so dearly. This is what it's meant for all of us. We find courage and I think help from one another to become like this people, this city within a city, if you will, living a different mandate, worshiping a different God than the prevailing culture because true worship is costly. We should be that group of people that people look at and just go, why does this keep costing you everything? Just do something else. It'll be better for you, right? Your parents are like, why, why do you still live in that city? Or your children are like, why do we have to go to this school? Or your friend is like, why do you keep worshiping God? It doesn't look like he's hearing you. It seems like it's really hard to do that. You see, this, we, we instinctively, rather, we don't uh, want to offer our bodies. We don't want to lose our lives. We, we instinctively know that true worship is going to cost us everything, so we find a different way to worship. Still get our Jesus on a little bit, still have this sort of spiritual thing going on in our life, but just like a little bit, just like Jesus light, right? I just want to still be part of the culture, but I don't actually want to surrender my life. So we settle. We settle for false worship. We settle for idol worship. We build our lives on other things. All of us. See, sin is worshiping or offering ourselves to anyone or anything other than the God of the Bible. And again, I think this is all out of fear. See, we fear worshiping God will make us poor. So what do we do? We build our lives on money. We fear worshiping God will make us look bad. So we build our lives on beauty. We fear worshiping God will make us miss out on pleasure. So we build our lives on sex, on uh, romance, and on adventure. We fear worshiping God. Job title someone will offer us that feels more impressive than the last. But those don't command your worship. Those are not worthy of your worship. Those are not merciful towards you. They destroy you. On their own merit, money is never enough. It only steals your peace. Beauty never lasts. It deceives your affections. Sex never satisfies. It manipulates your intimacies. Power never protects you. All it's going to do is expose your insecurities. It's only the true worship of God which does not steal or deceive or manipulate or expose you. No, my brothers and sisters, true worship saves you. It protects you. It heals you. It covers you. It clothes you in righteousness. 
to the reason for true worship. The reason for true worship is mercy. The cost is your whole life, but there's a great reward. Paul continues to describe the nature of true worship. He calls it, look at the latter half of the third part of verse 1, holy and acceptable to God. Most commentators see living, holy, and acceptable. All is modifying that word sacrifice, describing that word sacrifice. So sacrifice is living, that's the nature, but it's also holy and pleasing, that's the quality. So true worship is holy to God, it's acceptable to God, it's good to worship God, and it's devastating to worship other things. This is what we've covered. I think we even understand this reality. We know when we start worshiping something that will harm us and hurt us, and we still push forward with it anyway. You're like, I know this is not going to end well, but it still kind of feels good, and it still feels like it might work out for me. I'm going to hedge my bets and see how this goes. But I think intuitively we know it never goes well to build your life on fleeting pleasures. Foster Wallace concludes his thought to Kenyon College. He says, on one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, brahmids, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. And he says the trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. As Christians, it never goes worshiping to worship other gods. This is the story of our country and every country. It never goes well to worship other gods. Worshiping other gods never goes well. But remembering that is really tricky right? It doesn't matter how many times we disobey in a particular way. We're like, does it still happen this way? Does it still go bad if I do this? Does it still go bad? It's tricky to live this way. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses or forfeits himself. Following Jesus is about counting these costs of becoming living sacrifices. It's not meant to be a surprise. Jesus was constantly up front with his disciples. This is going to cost you. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And the reason they freak out all along the way is because they know the way of the master is the way of the follower. They know that if Jesus dies, we're next, right? But today we go, Jesus died so I don't have to suffer. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The way of the master is still the way of his followers. It's about counting these costs, but we don't want to do it because I think that we're afraid. We fear his disapproval. We fear his judgment. So we we follow Jesus because of the mercies of God. This is and before us. Before he told us to offer our bodies, Jesus offered his body as a living sacrifice. And he did so out of love, not fear. He did it not to coerce us, but to save us, to empower us, to enable us. This is the most tangible form of God's mercy towards us. And it ought then to lead us to tangible forms of sacrificial living in worship to him. See, true worship then, here's what's wild. True worship is the reward. True worship is the reward. See, We often want points or blessings because we worship or obey God. Like, did you notice this week, God, how I know I just messed up in a lot of ways, but there are a couple of things. I nailed it. I just nailed it. I really was patient with my children or I had a chance to like get my salary bumped up a little bit, but then I told the truth and like it cost me. So what are you going to give me now that I have worshiped you well? 
What if worship and living a holy and acceptable life is the reward? That you actually can do that. That you actually are enabled to do that. Wouldn't that completely change our mindset? That not there because I did this. Thank you, David. Because I did this, therefore I get a reward. But the reward is I am able to live this way. I don't want points for being a good dad. I want to be a good dad because that's a joy. I don't want to be a good brother in Christ so that I get like another jewel in my crown in eternity. I want to be a good brother to you because that's a joy to be a good family. The reward is the worship. The worship is the reward. Being holy and acceptable to God is not the aim of your life, Christian. That's the gift of becoming a Christian. Now when God looks at you, he sees his son. That's the reward. If daily we're working to become holy and pleasing to God, that's when we know we're worshiping out of fear. That's when we know that fear is dictating. That if God doesn't find me holy and acceptable, then it's going to lead to suffering and pain. But what if God already does? He already finds you holy and acceptable because of Jesus. See, this is why following and worshiping God is different, fundamentally different than every other world made good in Christ. You have been made holy and acceptable. See, daily then we're receiving the gift of relationship with the Father. Therefore, we can surrender to who we are in Christ. We can worship in response to mercy. See, true worship is the reward. Because we're holy and acceptable to God, I don't give a rip what anybody else says about you. I don't care what you think about yourself. The truth is that when God sees you, he sees holy and he sees acceptable. Let me take one more minute to prove it to you. Galatians chapter 5, in Christ you are all sons of God through faith for as many of you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So when the Father looks at you, he sees who? Christ. And in Mark 1.11, what does, what does the Father see when he sees his Son? With you, he says, I am well pleased. He sees his well-pleasing Son and he's pleased with you. This is why you don't have to live in fear. This is why you don't have to live in shame. He looks at you as holy and acceptable. He is pleased. He sees you and he is filled with joy because you look like his son. You look like his daughter because that's who you are. Therefore, we can joyfully offer our lives. It's not a sacrifice. It's a joy. What, following God's going to cost me money? Who cares? Money's dumb. Money is not helpful in the grand scheme of things. It only tricks me and confuses me to think I know what real treasure is. Can you imagine if we became a whole community sacrifice like that? It wouldn't make sense to anybody. We're like, this is the logical response to mercy. They're like, y'all are crazy. Yes, the logic of heaven never makes sense when it's incarnated on earth. Am I preaching to you yet? It never makes sense. The problem with the American church today is we make far too much sense to people. It's like, yeah, that looks right. They make decisions based on power, based on money, based on privilege, based on culture, based on segregation and separation and isolation and individualism, right? That makes sense. That plays. That's kind of how we operate too. Just not religion. It's more other things. Can you imagine if we started not making sense to people? I think that's what Romans chapter 12 is teaching us. That's why it's a reward. In sin, you and I are not holy and acceptable to God, but through redemption, the sacrifice of our lives, Paul tells the church in Corinth, it becomes this aroma to God. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us, 
spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? No, no greater place, I think, in the Scriptures give us a picture of what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. There is this scent then that we as a people give off to God. It's holy and acceptable. He's like, that's like my son. We give off the aroma of the one who is sacrificed for us. And Paul is saying there in, in 2 Corinthians, though, some people aren't going to like that. They're not going to like what that looks like. It's going to feel like judgment. It's going to feel like death. But for others, they're going to be saying, that's what I've been looking for my whole life. That is exactly who I want and what I want to become. That's the mercy I've been waiting for. See, God is merciful to you, church. Worship Him. And worshiping the Lord by giving your life away with your community. And when this happens, we'll know the joy of true worship, which is a reward unto itself. Let's thank God. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask for your forgiveness in the many ways that we have not lived this truth, but have stifled it, have tried to live a different way, a way that makes sense in this side of eternity, but not in the kingdom to come. It's not the logical response to mercy. And so forgive us for sins of fear and of entitlement of idolatry, of shame and guilt. Ways we've even tried to coerce and manipulate through fear to get other people to do stuff for us. That's not who you are. You are a God who for 11 chapters set up these original readers with me. So you would help us do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.